All right. I just had Marco Zlatic from whiteboardfinance.com on the site. He's actually more famous on YouTube. He's got uh, almost a million subs on YouTube. Uh, he's really cool. Like he does this thing where he just like he has a whiteboard and then he just teaches you about money. <laughs> and I've been following him for uh, several years. I met him in 2019 in person at a FinCon, at a personal finance uh, conference. And uh, man, just really smart. We went into a lot of different things. Like he's probably one of my favorite personal finance influencers because you know he knows his stuff. Uh, we talked about it on the podcast, but like there's a lot of personal finance influencers that just kind of like regurgitate CNBC articles. And, um, and he's one of the people that has been in the finance industry. Um, he, he talked about it in depth, but like he actually, you know, has a finance degree and, and has this great experience in the, in the financial industry. And then just started teaching like everyday dumb people like me, uh, how to, how to actually do things with their money. And so we talked about like, like real estate and, you know, what's going to happen in the economy next year and, uh, Dave Ramsey, all sorts of stuff. So I think this was one of my favorite episodes that I've done so far. I think you'll really enjoy it too. So I'll see you in the podcast. Hey, you know, the biggest question I've wanted to ask you. Sure. The entire time. What the hell am I supposed to be doing with crypto? Am I supposed to be buying it or not? Like, am I, am I supposed to be like just doubling down on Bitcoin? Like, and every well, time I've asked you about this, you tell me, you send me book recommendations. I'm like, no, I just want Mark to tell me what, what am I supposed to be doing? Like, what do I buy? Uh, so, so there's a big difference between Bitcoin and crypto, right? So, right, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I shouldn't have started with that then. <laughs> yeah. So that right there tells me you need to read the books I sent you. <laughs> yeah. There's a huge difference. Like uh, Bitcoin is the only crypto. It's the, it's the original crypto. That's what started everything um, without going down the, the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Um, Bitcoin can only be sound money. 99% uh, of other cryptos are basically i don't know it's used to enrich the founders for the most part some yeah. of them have use cases uh most of them some of them do have legitimate use cases but none of them can be sound money if that makes sense yeah so it just depends on what your you're content. yeah it just, it just depends on what you're trying to achieve and for me when i think of my net worth i look at it as a pie and each slice of that pie is basically the asset allocation for that asset. So say, for example, my net worth is always 10 to 15% in Bitcoin at all times. Uh, I've been buying Bitcoin every week since 2018. I don't care if it's uh, three grand. I don't care if it's 69,000. It doesn't matter uh, yeah. because in my opinion, it's just a digital store of value. Um, some people argue, oh, it's not a currency at this point. Um, and they're right. It's not a currency, but it is money. So that's the other thing that people don't understand. People don't know the difference between money and currency. Uh, right. Money, anything can be money. I can, if you want to uh, sell me your Toyota Corolla for some uh, seashells in my front yard, you know, that's <laughs> money, right? Those seashells are now money. Um, currency is basically decreed by the government. Uh, we have right now a fiat currency. It's not backed by anything other than uh, the military industrial complex, the petrodollar, um, war, things like that. Um, what gives our dollar money? It's obviously taxpayer receipts. Um, the interest on our debt right now is almost higher than that. <laughs> so we are now in a debt spiral. So what is your, you know, your uh, George Washington dollar bill backed by, right? right? So that's what a lot of people don't think about. Um, yes, Bitcoin is not currently a currency. It can be um, through the Lightning Network and it can transact just as fast as anything else. But um, in my, the way that I'm using it in my portfolio to diversify my pie, again, going back to that pie of net worth, um, is a digital store of value um, with a melting ice cube of a fiat currency that 99.9% .9 of the world uses. So, yeah. Okay. That's, that's, I thought you were going to give a good answer to that. Uh, so it sounds like I just need to dollar cost average and just call it good. I mean, it all depends on what you want to do, man. I mean, if you look at, um, I personally dollar cost average into everything, whether it's stocks, whether it's um, 
know, shares of real estate through either a REIT or like a Fundrise or something like that. Um, I dollar cost average, but um, you know, some people may want to lump sum and there are good opportunities to lump sum. Uh, depends on what your conviction is. So if you want to use like Bitcoin as an example, um, every 210,000 blocks, block, a block is just a piece of information verifying transactions in the blockchain. Um, every 210,000 blocks are roughly four years. Uh, Bitcoin goes through a halving process. So halving is the reward that miners get for verifying the, the network. Um, so in 2009, started at 50 Bitcoin. 210,000 blocks later is 25, 12 and a half, 6.75, so on and so forth. Uh, roughly in April of 2024, we will go through the next halving, and typically 12 to 18 months after the halving, Bitcoin reaches a new all-time high. Um, so that's why all the stuff going on with like a BlackRock ETF and you know all this stuff. Yes, that's helping the price of Bitcoin, uh, but ultimately it's just it's a finitely scarce asset with 21 million ever created, and the reward to get that is only getting harder and harder. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to dollar cost average. <laughs> and then I'm going to wait for it's what I want, dude, what I want and what I've always like, I just want to do what people were doing when they just bought it and then got super, super rich doing nothing. Like that's well, what I would like for it. <laughs> that, that day is done. I mean, yes, Damn you can it. still make, um, you most likely you can still make good returns because it's literally number go up technology. It's designed to uh, deflate and go up in price because of supply and demand. But, um, you can achieve that through ship. I'll call it ship, uh, like a sailing ship, ship coins, but just replace the P with a T. So um, all altcoins are ship coins, in my opinion, um, but you can still make ridiculous gains uh, with them. I just choose not to do that because ultimately it's a fool's errand. Um, why would I do that when all it takes is one bad trade? I erased all my gains, created a taxable event when I could yeah. have just been dollar cost averaging into Bitcoin. Um, the soundest money ever created by humans, in my personal opinion. It has all the properties of sound money, whether you agree or not with that. I mean, that's a different story, but it is true. Yeah. And in like Ethereum, I shouldn't care about that. It's proof of stake. So what people don't realize is if they don't go down the rabbit hole of understanding what proof of work versus proof of stake is, all it takes is a BlackRock to create a, uh, a Ethereum ETF. Uh, they they control the most stake and then they can do whatever they want with that um, with that uh, ledger if they want. So Bitcoin, you can't do that. Bitcoin is proof of work. You have to expend the energy. You have to mine it. You have to verify uh, transactions. It, it's not a... Proof of stake is central banking. Whoever has the most money just reaps the usury and the interest. Um, they control the system. It's no different than what we have today. Proof of work is the farmer planting the seed, uh, nurturing that seed. It's like raising a kid. You're a parent, right? You can either yep. be a crappy parent or a good parent. Uh, <laughs> sometimes we get unlucky and our kids suck anyway, but um, you know, mostly it's under our control. So that's, that's the key element between um, proof of work and proof of stake. Okay. What are the books that I'm supposed to read that I haven't read yet? Read these three in order. Um, uh, the Bullish Case for Bitcoin, Vijay Boyapati. Um, number two is Inventing Bitcoin by Jan Pritzker. That one's free. You can get it off uh, Swan's, uh, Swan Bitcoin's website. Um, that's the more technical explanation for layman's. Um, like, I'm not a technical person. I'm not a developer, but I understand how it works because of that book. Um, and then finally, uh, the Bitcoin standard, that's more, it's not even about Bitcoin. The Bitcoin standard is more about um, the history of money and why Bitcoin makes sense. And then there's a million more, but those are the three foundational ones. Okay. Dude, I remember, um, when was this? When was the NFT thing really big? <laughs> I don't know. It was like two years ago. I never yeah. got into that. Man, I had a, so I, I went and played golf uh, with a buddy of mine, Robert Farrington, actually from uh, College Investor. Mm -hmm. And he was talking to me, this is like when it was at the height 
and I don't, I don't have any NFTs, but I started looking at them because I had I was getting FOMO and I was like, dude, what the hell is this? And yeah, I was it's like, human nature. <laughs> yeah. So I was like looking at all this stuff. I was like, God, I don't, just, I don't understand it. And then I was I was playing golf with him. Um, and he was just like, oh, dude, like I just did this thing where I bought like, I don't know if it was like a mutant cat or so. it was something not stupid. <laughs> it was like mutant cat. And if you or no, it was an ape is the apes is like if you get a mutant ape and then you get another one and then they like merge with each other and then it's going to be worth like way more. He's yeah. like, you got to do it. And I was like, I was like, well, how much is that? He's like 40 K. And it was like, I sat there and I thought about it. And I was like, holy shit, should I do this? I might, I might do this because it seems like such a good opportunity. And then I didn't do it. Thank God. And then the whole thing came crashing down like right after that. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, most of those projects went to, I don't want to say zero, but most of them have lost, you know, 90% or more of their value. Here's the thing, man, we're in, um, we're in 13 years of zero interest rate policy. So when money's cheap and it's not very uh, scarce or it doesn't mean anything to anyone, yeah. like you saw firsthand what happened during the PPP loans, the stimulus, the helicopter money, you know, people started, you know, they just started buying stuff left <laughs> and right, right? Yeah. When you have a scarce asset, why would you ever trade that for a mutant JPEG? You probably wouldn't do that. Uh, so in my, in my humble opinion, um, I still, I'm a big believer of, again, going back to the pie analogy, you should figure out what you're comfortable with with each asset slice. So say you're into real estate, 35%, stocks, 35%, uh, precious metals, couple percent, you know, whatever. Whatever you're into could be, uh, you know, rare cars, I don't know. Um, but yeah. as long as you're okay with that slice going to zero and you're not going to jump off a building or drink yourself to death, um, <laughs> then that's my sleep well at night uh, asset allocation, if that makes sense. No, that's if fine. you're okay, if you're okay with the JPEGs going to zero, then that's fine. But if it's hundred percent of your net worth, then you're an idiot, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, dude, some people got really rich and that's the problem is like some people got extremely wealthy very quickly. And then it was just like, wait a second, what am I missing out on? Like there's <laughs> what, what is going on? And it's so crazy. Cause like, I'm, I'm a pretty conservative, like, you know, I, I buy stocks and like I invest in my businesses and like, that's, I don't like to do a lot of stuff, but it was crazy how even like I was sitting there going like, should I spend forty thousand dollars on this thing? <laughs> like I didn't, yeah, it's, you know? it's human nature, man. It really is human nature. If you just go to Google Trends and type in, you know, NFTs, you can see, you know, it literally spikes up and then it crashes down. It yeah. almost reflects the uh, the price chart of it directly. Yeah. Did you think that the FTX thing was going to happen before it happened? No, no idea. Because here's the way I thought about it. So um, a lot of YouTubers were approached by FTX to be sponsors. Yeah. And when you see typically, you know, as a, so me personally, and then you, you obviously have your own business and a blog and certain yeah. partners you work with. Um, whenever I do like a sponsored video, it's like, okay, is this something I like, know, and trust? Do I use it? Is it a way to promote something that I believe in? Um, and basically when I saw like, all these different high level celebrities who have teams of managers who vet this stuff before they yeah. put their stamp of approval on it. Um, I didn't dig deep enough because it's a privately held company that's not publicly traded. You can't go and read the, you know, the right. disclosures and things like that. So when you see like the Steph Curry's and the Shaquille O'Neal's and, you know, Kevin O'Leary's, all these, you know, somewhat trusted uh, influencers yeah. um, and celebrities, you're like, oh, okay, you know, maybe they know something I don't know. But um, no, I didn't foresee this happening. But when you watch all these documentaries that have that went back from like 2019, 2020, and they start showing different tweets, uh, it all starts to make sense that there were some cracks in the system. But you basically had to be an investigative journalist at that point to understand it. I think for the everyday person, it was just another exchange, for example. But that's yeah. why going back to the start of the conversation with Bitcoin, um, you need to get it off all exchanges and you need to be a sovereign individual holding your own keys to your wallet. Um, if you don't do that, then it's no different than just leaving, you know, a bag of money in, at the bank, right? It could get robbed, yeah. it could get whatever. So 
Um, not your keys, not your cheese. Yeah. I've heard you say that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It's wild how all that stuff went down. What it like, can you explain? I actually don't know what you're, you're one of the smartest. I feel like one of the best YouTube financial people out there that I think personally, I'm not, I'm like, not the smartest. I just, I've been into this for a long time, but I appreciate well, the compliment. You're one of the best at explaining things, um, to Thank dumb you. people <laughs> like me, you know, like uh, I like watching too. I'm dumb too. I've just been following it for a long time, but I appreciate the compliment, Bobby. Yeah, man. Yeah. But so what, like, what is your background then? Like, but how did you get into, I don't know. Can you just explain like how you got into finance at all? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So basically I was the kid that was probably similar to your personality or maybe Mike's, uh, you know, I've, I don't know if people know who Mike is, but um, he's my business partner. Of yeah, Mike's a business empires. partner. Yeah. yeah, Mike's a friend of mine. I can call him a friend as well. Um, so basically, I'm your kid that was selling Pokemon cards at 12 years old. I was the kid yeah. that was selling, you know, uh, pirated mixtapes at lunch, you know, in middle school. <laughs> like, literally, just like I had fun, like finding a niche in the market and providing that solution. So very entrepreneurial. And then I realized, like, okay, I started to get older, you know, not older, but 17, 18 years old, ready to graduate, right. ready to pick a major. And I realized, like, okay, what do smart, rich people do? They're not selling Pokemon cards. They're buying stocks, real estate, you know, generational wealth opportunities. Um, so I've always just been into stocks. I've been investing since 2006. I'm um, 35, so I was 18 in 2006. Uh, I have a finance degree from the University of Akron. And then okay. my goal was to become a financial advisor um, and then I, I graduated in December of 2010 during the middle of the great financial crisis when <laughs> unemployment was over 10% and no one was hiring, right? Um, so I'm from a suburb of Cleveland. Uh, biggest employers here are Cleveland Clinic and then you know a lot of finance and then a lot of manufacturing. So um, when you couldn't find a job in a pretty decently sized financial hub in the Midwest, that's when you knew like, okay, this was pointless. Why did I go to school? And right. I didn't want to move away from family. So my origin story was I sold cars, worked in commercial real estate, uh, worked in commercial real estate lending, you know, mortgage-backed securities, things like that. And then ultimately, um, I worked at a publicly traded bank here in Cleveland um, on the back end of just credit analysis. And I never scratched that itch of being a financial advisor. So I always had a passion for personal finance, but was never able to really scratch that itch. So one day right. my brother-in-law and I, we bought a big whiteboard off Craigslist. <laughs> and uh, that was that was uh, November 17th, uh, 2017. So it's going to be six years tomorrow when I did okay. my first video on YouTube. Damn. That's pretty cool, man. That's like a very, I, that's, but when you, it comes across, like, I, I feel like there's a lot of like influencers and bloggers that like, I don't want to say make stuff up, but like, your knowledge seems like it's like real knowledge. You know what I mean? Like it, it's like, okay, this comes from like real experience. Um, which I think is why I like watching your stuff so much. You probably didn't know that I watch your stuff. I watch your stuff pretty often. Oh, uh, your you. stuff comes across my feet all the time, but like, nice. I just think it's really interesting. And it's a good approach with the whiteboard too. And it's, I don't know, the whole thing's pretty cool. So well, your, your background was education, right? I was a teacher. Yeah. yeah I used to be I a band director. Yeah, yeah. See, I feel like the, um, well, maybe not necessarily a one-to-one -one translation being a band director, but I feel like the the whiteboard, it turns it into like a classroom setting. Yeah. And you know you're sure. going to learn something when you watch the video, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, no, it's just a really cool approach. And you've grown, I mean, how big is your channel now? It's like almost a million, right? Or is it? it yeah, it's at 970,000 subscribers. And that's all from, that's all pre, I've never done um, shorts. Uh, so I didn't grow like from, from some viral short. I didn't pay yeah. for any views. So it's all organic, which which is crazy to think, but crazy. Um, I usually, and your, your assumption is right. I, I only usually make videos about stuff that I've done in real life. Uh, right. And that's typically 
some sort of, you know, car related stuff. Uh, it's some sort of, you know, investing, personal finance and commercial real estate for the most part. So yeah. all my videos come rooted with experience. So maybe that's why there's, let's, let's just be honest. There's creators that literally just regurgitate CNBC articles and you know, they're regurgitating yeah. a CNBC article. And then there's <laughs> ways that you can know when they're talking, it's like, this person has no idea what they're talking about just by the language they're using. Um, and then you have people that can speak knowledgeably and provide more insight because they've actually been in the trenches, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it, it, you can, it, you can tell the difference. Like it, it kind of like pops off the, the page instantly, you know, like you can just see that, that difference when somebody actually knows what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, like, you know, a good example. I watched your Dave Ramsey video last oh, night. Which, which one I've done too. I've done a credit card one. I did the one where he recommends the 8% withdrawal rate. Yeah. The, the with, withdrawal rate. rate okay. One. Like yeah, that, that was, was wild. Good. I watched that and I'm sure everybody was like just as surprised, but like he's been doing that for so long. You would think that he wouldn't make a mistake like that. It was like really strange to watch that. Well, there's a, there's a great app for the people listening to this. Um, let me put in my browser real quick. So I don't want to mess it up. Uh, what is it called? Oh, it's uh FICALC. So F I C A L C dot app, A P P. So FICALC dot app. So, um, I don't know the person who created this website. I'm not, you know, endorsed by them or anything like yeah. that, but I use that to actually put in Dave's assumptions and you're at the risk of ruin, meaning your money's going to go to zero, like way over half the time. It was like 54% or something like that. And that was only over you, 25 years. Can you explain what he said? Like, can you walk back through it? Yeah. Um, is this a video podcast or just audio? It's both. Both. Okay. Just for the people, uh, I could share my screen because I have it pulled up. But basically, this guy calls in, he's 30 years old. He said, hey, Dave, I have, you know, uh, some money saved up. I feel like I'm close to financial independence, retire early. Traditionally, the Trinity study, which is the 4% withdrawal rate, um, that's basically telling you, hey, there's a 99% chance that you will never um, not only have your portfolio go to zero, but you may not ever even have to touch the principal or you're never going to go below the principal that you started with if you take out 4% uh, a year for uh, 25 years and you can adjust 2% per year for inflation, right? So yeah. say, for example, you have a million bucks, 4% of a million bucks is $40,000. Uh, if your annual expenses are $40,000 a year and they only go up 2% per year for inflation, you are technically financially independent. So how does that work? Uh, so this, the, the, in a nutshell, the thesis is that stocks have always been able to overcome a 6% withdrawal rate, so 4 plus 2 for inflation, um, over time to where you may never even touch that nut, that nest egg of a million bucks. And it may even grow in some cases. It may not reach zero in most cases, 99% of the time. So that's the gist of it. So what Dave was saying is that if you have a million bucks, you can take out $80,000 a year forever. Those were his exact words. So um, when you actually run the case study, um, you are basically, you're smoked. Uh, uh, 60, actually seven, yeah, 60% yeah, of the time. It was like 39% over 30 years and then like 46% of the time over 25 years. So if yeah. he's talking to a 30-year-old caller, um, this guy may get the risk of ruin. And so a lot of these happen before the 30 and 25 years. It's not just you're guaranteed 25 years of money. Some happen if you get hit with the dot-com bubble, the great financial crisis six years later, and then yeah. COVID, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> about 13 years after that, you're at zero uh, most of the time, right? Right. Uh, very quickly if you're taking out that 80 grand a year. Um, so that's why my personal uh, comfort zone, being a parent of two, um, husband, father, like four to five percent is what I'm comfortable with, and I live, you know, I live in a suburb of Cleveland. We don't spend any crazy money, um, you know. We have no debt, thank God. But uh, we do like to vacation. I'm a big proponent of kind of like remit's money dials, you know, spend on the yeah. stuff that you like. Um, but you know, we don't live some lavish lifestyle. But I'm not going to skip 
you know, a ribeye steak or a nice vacation just to be able to make my money last a little bit longer. Right. You have to, <laughs> yeah, you, have yeah. to you have to live life is my philosophy, if that makes sense. There's yeah, a good book that. called I know I'm rambling, but there's a good yeah. book called Die With Zero. Uh, Bill Perkins. Mm. Um, that's basically my life's philosophy in a nutshell. OK. OK. I haven't read that one. I've heard about it a lot, though. Yeah, it's great. Um, that's why. Yeah, that's always been my problem with the fire movement it's like and it's funny because we've got a web developer on our team that like he's way into fire it's like they count like every single dollar down to the, it's like and it's just like one it seems kind of exhausting but it's like also like dude like this you're talking about like you're trying to save money at like taco bell like you want to save like 30 cents per taco or something it's like it gets down to this ridiculous level i have um, i have videos sorry to interrupt bobby i have videos that talk about how 20 cent iced coffee doesn't build wealth like i'm right. the anti you know the not graham stefan as a person graham's a good dude but his whole miser mentality is like literally disgusting to me um because i'm so my ethnicity is i'm serbian so my parents are from the balkans which is a mediterranean lifestyle like yeah. smoke cigs drink coffee go watch soccer olive oil you know the world's unhealthiest diet but they somehow live to like a million years old and actually have zero stress <laughs> yeah. um, and i feel like most westerners completely lose the plot when it comes to balancing your quality of life and your money um yeah. it, it's just being extreme you don't have to be some crazy person in debt you don't have to be some you know saving 30 cents at taco bell you have to be somewhere in the golden middle and that's kind of my moniker is you know spend the money on things that bring you immense joy you know, pull back on some other things that can save you a lot of money, not 20 cent iced coffee, but maybe renegotiating your home insurance, your car insurance, right. you know, um, don't buy the stupid, you know, $70,000 truck, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's more of like a common sense, logical approach as opposed to an extremist social media approach. Right. Do you, so do you think going back to Dave real quick, do you think that he just like, he just messed up? Like, is he so wealthy now that he just doesn't understand how these things work because this company is monster. Like they do so much revenue. Oh yeah, dude. They're, they're no, I, I applaud Dave. I think Dave is great for getting out of debt. And I believe a lot of his uh, baby steps are applicable to a large majority of the population. I, I agree with him on a lot of stuff when it comes to getting out of debt. Yeah. Um, I will say that he's probably, I hate to say like, Oh, okay. Boomer. You know, I hate to yeah. the generational, huge, broad brush, but yeah. you have to realize he's the product of 40 years of interest rates basically going down. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. like, of course he's going to feel like he's a genius. And, um, I feel like we've had a lot of that over the past 13 years, but I feel like I see that comment a lot where, you know, he's just out of touch. He's worth, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars at this point. Um, I think with him, he's the type of dude where, He's taught something for so long that he's very set in his ways, which is good for getting out of debt. But when it comes to um, like the name calling and stuff like that, you know, stupid goober, whatever. And it's funny because he always talks about how he's, uh, you know, some big Christian and doesn't like to swear. What's the difference between calling someone a goober, a stupid goober and a dumbass? You know what I mean? There's no, the, right. the meaning is the same, right? Just because you're using a specific word doesn't make you better or worse than anyone. Um, so my point is, is that if he just disclosed uh, and was a little bit more transparent, I feel like his credibility would be way higher, at least on the investment side of things. Um, some people do say he discloses, you know, American funds, mutual funds. I forgot the ticker symbol is like AI, FVX or something like that. But it's basically kept up with S&P 500. And the video that I did that you talked about uh, yesterday, the one I did yesterday, um, historically, if you just use the S&P 500, if you use the compound annual growth rate, it's right in the neighborhood of 10% held over a long period of time, typically like 30, 40 years. Um, there's a good chart on Twitter that shows like the volatility of the swings of the S&P 500. If you hold it for one year, two years, three years, four years, five years, 10, 15, 20, 30. And if you think of like... Um, 
like a standard deviation, like a wave. I know people listening to the audio can't see my hand. The longer <laughs> you hold it, the smaller that standard deviation is, the smaller the volatility is. Going back to, like you said, don't buy, a, this was like earlier, you said don't buy a $70,000 car, but you're into cars. Like you, you like, you know, I've seen you with the BMWs and stuff. Like, yeah. what, what is that? Are you, are you flipping them or you're just buying them, flipping them for uh, mostly, mostly flipping unless it's a daily driver. So like the most money I've ever lost on a car was a Honda Accord trying to be responsible dad. Uh, the most yeah. money I've made is on a Porsche 911. So there's a lesson in there, right? So uh, here's the thing. Uh, collectible cars, they're always going to have um, demand. And if yeah. the supply goes down, demand is high. That only means one thing for the price, right? It goes up. So um, when I look at cars to flip, it, it, don't think of this as like, I'm flipping my grandma's 30 year old, you know, Mitsubishi Galant, you know, like, no, these are like desirable, you know, uh, BMWs, Mercedes, uh, not necessarily Audi, uh, sometimes trucks, sometimes Jeeps, right? Those are very niche um, categories. So perfect example, uh, my dad and I, we bought a 1983 911 SC. It's an air-cooled uh, 911 Porsche. And uh, basically the demand for air-cooled Porsches exploded about five to 10 years ago. Okay. Uh, so we bought this, we found it on Craigslist from a local real estate developer. It was a show car, it had like 100,000 miles on it, absolutely pristine, um, rebuilt engine, you know, really nice. So we bought it for 21, put about six into it. We redid the interior, um, really nice uh, burgundy leather, uh, gold BBS wheels, you know, cleaned it up, drove it, enjoyed it for, you know, a few years. And we sold it on Bring a Trailer for like $53,000. Um, so we basically had 26 into it, drove a Porsche, made, you know, 27 grand, whatever, paid taxes. Um, yeah. And then I'm losing money on Honda Accords. So, <laughs> so, but that's not a, that's not a fair comparison. The Honda Accord was a daily driver, realized I need a bigger car with my second kid. Um, so it all depends on, it's no different than finding some sort of niche uh, product. Some for some, for some yeah. people that's gun collectors. Uh, it could be Pokemon cards. It could be you know Magic the Gathering. You know whatever. So um, I just feel like you need to find the right thing. And if you can find the right niche and uh, buy from a reputable seller and know what you're doing, I mean, there's definitely money to be made because there's always demand for that product, whatever that may be. Yeah. Are you? I mean, is this something you just do as a hobby? Like this is for fun, or is it like it's, you? Yeah. My dad's a mechanical engineer. I grew up with cars, oh, okay. so he's okay. like he's like all into cars. I like detailing cars. Uh, he's really good at finding them. He's the guy that lives on like Craigslist, has the alerts <laughs> on, you know, all that stuff. And he likes doing it as a hobby. So he's retired now. So his last one was a 1986 uh, 635 CSI BMW, the one with the shark nose, the the one that looks like a drug dealer car. If you've okay. ever seen Paid in Full, uh, Paid in yeah. Full is an old uh, old movie. But um, yeah, beautiful car. He drove to North Carolina, uh, restored a lot of it. I think he had like 15 grand into it. He just sold it on Bring a Trailer for like 23. And the cool thing about Dang. the car community or the car culture, especially in those types of cars, you meet like A, really rich people, and then you meet really cool people that are into that stuff. So the person that bought that car was some like old dude from Utah, flew into Cleveland Hopkins and drove it all the way back to Utah. <laughs> Um, the guy that bought Dang. the 1983 Porsche flew into Cleveland, drove it all the way back to California. Uh, we just sold a 2005 Carrera S, um, and it made slightly more than the S&P 500 for our holding period. So with people that argue, Dang. oh, you got to maintain it, you got to do this, you got to do that. It's like, yeah, can you drive your stocks, you know, on a Sunday, <laughs> you know, Sunday morning? Like, no, you can't. Like, this is like a Swiss army knife flying through like, you know, the Cleveland Metro parks. And then, you know, you sell it and make a profit and enjoy it. You know, as opposed to, you know, just staring at the pixels on the screen, watching your portfolio right. grow, right? So there's different ways to enjoy your money and still make money, right? Yeah. Are BMWs your favorite or is it? 
as a daily driver, I like BMWs. My favorite car I've ever owned was a 2005 E55 AMG. Um, this thing, you can have two cars, uh, two kids seats in the back, have your golf clubs in the trunk, have your skis on yeah. the roof and still go, you know, zero to 60 in four seconds. Um, <laughs> is you know, unbelievable, perfectly engineered car. And then uh, my second favorite car is the car I have today. It's a 2019 X5. Um, got it from Scottsdale, super clean. Um, I love it. So it's a great functional family car. That one I will probably not make money on because I'm just going to hold it forever. Yeah, I, I gotta. I'm going to hit you up when I like. So we had this. We have a Yukon, and then we've got a Mercedes GLK 350. Oh, and nice. The, the GLK was my wife's car, and then because like I did. I mean, it's fine. I just don't really like it that much. Um, yeah, that's then, that's, a, that's a woman's car for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so she loved that car, but then we had a kid, and then now all of a sudden, like my Yukon is hers. You know, yeah. so now I'm driving this GLK around, and it's like it. You know, it's fine you know yeah. but i'm just like okay i gotta get something that's like i gotta get something that is more for me you know i know i know what floats your boat here's the thing this is what i think of when i think of you uh lexus just redesigned the gx 460 it's now the gx 550 um okay, you'll probably one. never use it to its full capability but it's basically just a indestructible luxury forerunner um but they did change the engine they went from their legendary uh eight cylinder to a twin turbo six cylinder and then when you start introducing turbos it starts introducing more headache um, but it's sick, dude. It's it's boxy. It's masculine. Oh, that um, looks cool. Yeah, no disrespect, but the GLK is definitely like the wife's car for sure. Yeah, no, she. Yeah, definitely, definitely. <laughs> I was like, uh, I was, but it was like when you have a kid, you know, you kind of, I don't know. It's like you, you kind of start care. losing a lot of battles and stuff, and like, yeah, like, dude, yeah. We kept it as my wife keeps it at like seventy four degrees inside of our house, or no, it used to be seventy six in our house, which was wild, <laughs> and we always fought about that because I I'm hot natured, and then um, we had our kid, and then one night he got hot. And then it, like now it's down, like she turned it down like three degrees, you know? So yeah. That's Just how it remember, goes. Though. Well, I don't want to say anything about cats and women and kids, but <laughs> uh, we'll save that for when the, when, it, when we're not recording. You tell, yeah. You can tell me after. Yeah. Um, so yeah, going, going back to, you know, one of the things that is interesting that I've, I've seen that you talk about a lot is like the, uh, traveling to Eastern Europe because I, I've been, I haven't been to Eastern Europe. Well, I don't think so. I've been to Italy. I've been to France. So I guess I haven't been to Eastern Europe, but like, you talk about the quality of life being like awesome there. So like, where, where should I be going? Yeah. So I'm talking about Southeastern Europe. So there's a, there's a difference. You have, okay. uh, you have potato Europe and you have tomato Europe, big difference. So okay. <laughs> Eastern Europe is potato Europe. Uh, the Balkans is tomato Europe. So when I say that it's uh it's just Mediterranean lifestyle. So when I say I like the Balkans, people don't think of it right away. They think of like, Oh, you know, war and you know, all this stuff. Um, that was the case 30 years ago, um, just because that's where East meets West. That's basically where Eastern world, Turkey meets okay. Europe, Christianity, if you will. So um, I like it there because uh, if you've ever been, I don't know well, you said you haven't been, but like it's now starting to get popular because of social media. So everyone's okay. in Croatia for Yacht Week. Everyone's in you know Montenegro for whatever. Yeah. So I'll say that within the given amount of space for how small the Balkans is, um, it's just it's just beautiful. It's perfectly located. You can get anywhere very quickly. That's why it's such a strategic area of the world. Again, east and west, it's kind of right in the middle. Yeah. Um, and also the quality of the food, the quality of the lifestyle, and just music, culture, everything, everything about it. Um, I, I like it because when you come there from, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, when you come from the United States where people are going 100 miles an hour, working eight to five, Monday through Friday, sometimes on the weekend, side hustling, all this stuff. There's nothing wrong with that because that's how I built whiteboard finance. But right. um, over there is a much slower pace of life. So it's probably more of like a Spanish Mediterranean culture, Italian culture. Um, the Balkans is no different. 
um, it's basically a culmination of, uh, how do I say this, Eastern influence, uh, Central European influence, and Mediterranean influence. And the geography is just, okay. it's, it's like great weather. Uh, soil is very fertile. So everything you eat there, just nothing in the States compares unless you're getting it straight from like a farm, for example. Dang. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, because like we've been trying to figure out what our next trip, I mean, it's a little harder with kids. Do you travel over there with kids? Uh, we're going to for the first time uh, this this upcoming summer. So um, it's easier for me to say that because I'm not coming as a, I'm coming as a foreigner. You know, I was born in the States, right. but um, we have two properties over there. You know, my grandparents moved back 20 years ago. Uh, you know, it's, that's cool. So for me, it's more of a geo arbitrage play. So here's kind of what I'm getting to. It's if you have, if you make like a Western salary and you decide mm. to live in, you know, Belgrade or, you know, Croatia or where, wherever, you know, the, the coast, the Dalmatian coast is beautiful, the Adriatic Sea, um, you live like a king, right? So my buddy, he works for a uh, tech startup in Austin. He's also Serbian. Uh, he was just in the Balkans. You live like a king for 1500 bucks a month, right? Dang. And then here it's like, you know, am I going to be able to like buy groceries <laughs> this month? You know, right. like inflation <laughs> is killing me and you're making, you know, 80 grand a year, right? Yeah. So it's just a... The value is what I'm trying to say. Uh, you get much more for your money. However, it is kind of a selfish perspective because for the people over there, stuff still is expensive because they're getting hit with inflation as well. You know, groceries are up 80, 90 percent. Um, yeah. So selfishly as a Westerner over there, yes, it is a much higher quality of life. But for the people that live there, you know, obviously they, they sometimes still struggle as well. Um, but I will say this, people learn to live on a lot less and that's why... In my opinion, they're happier. Um, they don't have all the mental health issues we do in the United States with all these shootings and all this crazy stuff going on. And yeah. also, when you get into a a homogenous culture, I know people aren't going to like to hear this, but it's true. There's a higher trust in the society. Everyone kind of knows each other, right? It's everything's That's on a smaller scale. Um, you know, neighbors are going to your weddings here in the states. Sometimes people don't even know their neighbors, right? So right. it's just it's just a different dynamic from a community standpoint. Is what I'm trying to say. It's a it's a deeper it's a higher, it's a, the United States is very good for, um, material, uh, mm -hmm. lifestyle and earning an income, starting a business, getting, you know, your income right. Uh, but it's much more shallow from a cultural and quality of life standpoint, in my personal opinion. Yeah. Yeah. My wife and I have talked about it, like, cause we went, we went to France and we were like, man, I could retire here. I mean, it's, it doesn't seem like it's the same geo arbitrage there, but like just the culture is like everything's so much slower and like more chill. So yeah, I want to check that out. Maybe I'll move there next year when the economy like just completely <laughs> the wheels fall off. Are we screwed next you, year? If you know Nomad Capitalist, he always touts like you know, all these different um, uh, passports and things like that. And uh, I was thinking about doing maybe dual passports, maybe dual That's citizenship, cool. but I don't know. I may not go that far down the rabbit hole, but you, you know, you never know. I mean, the, the States is great. I love the United States. I'm very grateful for it. And I live in an area where there's a big community, culture, church, all that stuff. So I'm not, I'm not yeah. yearning for those things. But when I think of like average, you know, Mike Smith, who's a transplant to Austin, Texas, and he's nowhere near his family. Um, you know, my grandparents, my, my parents are a mile away. My in-laws are half a mile away. Yeah. And my grandkids, my kids see their grandparents literally every day. So for me, stuff like that is important. Yeah. Yeah, the same thing. My parents live like right down the street, and my mother-in-law lives. Our my kids sees his grandparents all the time. It's awesome. It's awesome. But, um, but yeah, to so next year, what's what's happening in the economy? Where are we where are we heading right now? Um, what's your prediction? So here, here's the thing. The way I look at it is that when you look at like the numbers and stuff, like I think we just had a GDP increase of like four point six percent. I believe it just came out like uh, two three weeks ago. 
Um, so on on paper, everything looks good, and the S and P five hundred is up, you know, eighteen percent year to date. But I feel like the stock market decoupled from the economy a long time ago. Yeah. Um, but here's the thing: if you just look at common sense and you just have anecdotal evidence, um, I feel like everything that's holding everything together is the perceived low unemployment rate. You know, we're almost mm-hmm. at historic lows and that precedes every uh, recession every time. Um, and then also when you look at stuff with like the inverted yield curve, the 10-year versus the two-year, um, when a two-year is yielding more um, rate of return for a similar risk profile than a longer-term duration uh, T-bill or bond, if you will, um, something's not right. Something's broken. Yeah. So that is starting to de- um, de-invert. And basically that always precedes a recession 12 to 18 months after that. So just based on the knowledge or the stuff that I've seen in the past, recessions usually come 12 to 18 months after. Um, that was maybe 12 months ago. So we're basically <laughs> at like the six-month point. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. But what I'll say is I feel like every entrepreneur I talk to, whether it's landscaping, restaurants, you know, anything, they always say people don't want to work. I'm having a hard time finding employees. You know, yeah. Instead yeah. of restaurants being open for breakfast and lunch, they just open for dinner, you know, that kind of a thing. So I don't know how those people who, quote unquote, don't want to work are affording, you know, any type of lifestyle. Um, You know, I do okay for myself. I do well for myself. And I feel like I'm just middle class, right? Yeah. Um, So I just don't know the people that, you know, have these increasing levels of credit card debt. We're we're literally at all time highs right now. I think it's like one point something trillion. I can't remember. But um, I don't know. I just don't know how people are affording certain lifestyles. I feel like the United States trails Europe by like two, three generations in uh, society, culture, politics, lifestyle. And I feel like people are going to have to learn to live on less uh, in the upcoming generations, if that makes sense. Like poor people so have iPhones. I hate to say like they, they, they let's not mince word. Like people right. have a $1,200 supercomputer in their pocket and, you know, they have credit card debt up to their eyeballs. So I just don't know how people are sustaining certain qualities of life, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, it's been really interesting. I think, I don't know. It's like, we keep hearing that everything's fine, but like, there's just the feeling that it's not. And we I'm like, I agree. Even for us, like when we're, it, when we're selling our products and stuff on uh, millennial money, man, like more people are asking for payment plans than they've ever asked for before. Yeah, And it, that's an interesting, it's just like, people are still buying stuff, but it's like, they're, they're stretching out the payments and it's like, how long can that go on? But also it just, people are, are just kind of, there's like a sense of like, fear maybe or just uneasiness and maybe that's just inflation maybe it's just like everybody feels that like oh man everything's more expensive the groceries are more expensive mm-hmm. um but then it's like you hear the news reports it's like oh everything's fine soft landing everything's gonna be great um yeah i'm not a, i'm not a doomer by any means i just look at the data and make interpretations from that but then you also have to kind of like go out in the streets as well because not everything's going to be reported 100 accurately like with those unemployment rates sometimes they don't even count people that have stopped looking for jobs you know right so i guess uh, i agree with you in the fact that like i feel like the way that this economy works if you think of like your heart it pumps blood throughout your system um, the blood is just money circulating right yeah. um, i feel like with debt it enables people to maintain that quality of life although the net worth or the balance sheet of the household is not increasing they're just kicking the can down the road right and yeah. the biggest precursor to hey, you know, how's this not broken yet? It goes back to my original thought of people still have jobs, right? Um, And you can get a job fairly easily because people don't want to work, right? So it's kind of like, I can't figure it out. It's almost like this black box of like, on one hand, people don't want to work. On the other hand, you see record low unemployment and then you see people swiping the card or making a payment plan and it's coming for 
um, instead of houses and cars, mortgages and car loans, it's like, let me lay away this like pair of jeans, you know, let me make right. a payment plan on my groceries. You know, there's like a meme online talking about that <laughs> where it's like, you know, you can only kick that can so far down the road is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So are you doing anything to prepare for next year? If there is a recession? Um, is it- I have, I have the most money I've ever had in cash in my life. So I'm the, I'm the savers or losers guy. Um, so yeah. what I mean is savers aren't losers. I'm a saver. My parents are immigrants. They're savers. Everyone's a saver. My point is, is that um, when I say savers are losers, historically, especially during zero interest rate policy, ZERP, um, what were you getting in a savings account, you know, three, four years ago? Nothing. 1% Nothing, maybe. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So while the rate of inflation is significantly higher than that. So if you're saving money, you're literally eroding your purchasing power over time. So even though I'm getting 5% right now in a high yield savings account, um, it's through M1 Finance. Um, I know that restaurants, groceries, all that stuff have gone up significantly more than 5%, right? So I'm literally losing purchasing power. But the reason I have more cash than ever right now is because A, um, my cash savings is always an emergency fund. Uh, So my Mm -hmm. rule of thumb is if you're like, you know, single bachelor, single bachelorette, Three months should be should be fine. You you lose your job, you can find one within three months. If you have a, a significant other or a family, uh, six months. And then if you're some sort of you know small business owner, commissioned salesperson, your income is unstable. I shoot for twelve months. So for me, I have twelve months of expenses in the bank. Um, so heaven forbid anything that happens, I'm good for a year. And then anything above and beyond that is the offensive side of the emergency fund. And that's for buying opportunities. What I see opportunities in, um, in the next, I'd say two to three years. Um, Cause remember people, when people were buying real estate after the great financial crisis in 07, 08, the best time to buy was 2012, 2013. That's when rates were yeah. the lowest and that's when prices were the lowest. This isn't going to happen overnight. Right? So for me, um, I'm holding cash right now, earning 5%, which is fine. I'm okay with that. Um, And then also that is going to be focused on most likely some sort of uh, real estate, whether single family homes or um, commercial real estate. I don't think we're going to see a significant 07, 08 event in single family homes. We will see that in commercial real estate um, just because I don't know how much your audience knows, but there's a lot of syndicators the last five to eight years. Uh, Syndicators are just the general partner. They say, uh, say, let's pretend I'm a GP general partner. I say, hey, Bobby, you have a bunch of money. I'm investing in this deal. Give me some money, right? Mm-hmm. You you are now an LP, a limited partner. A lot of these syndicators were running deals with very little experience. They're taking on variable interest rate loans, mortgages. When those uh, rates got hiked almost like a record number of times and a record number of period um, that we just saw over the last three to six months, a lot of these people are getting foreclosed on now. And these are on apartment complexes, self-storage, you know, things like that. So yeah, I think there's yeah. going to be a big um, distressed asset opportunity in commercial real estate. That's interesting. Um, but in residential, I, I'm probably going to buy a house next year. Like I got to, we're moving my mother-in-law in with me and all sorts of stuff. But nice. I'm like looking at all the stuff and there's like no inventory. <laughs> the prices are high. And I'm like, geez, man, maybe I just need to like wait. I and mean, we don't have to move. So it's one of those things I'm just going to like hold out. But like, how long do you think it's going to, like, do you think prices are going to come down and do you think they're going to make interest rate cuts? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. So the first part, do I think prices are going to go down? So I, I had a, I want to say, I don't know, 12 to 18 months ago, I had a video talking about how uh, real estate prices will correct. So, you know, you use crash in the title, but if you actually watch the video, it's, it's a correction. <laughs> it's not a crash. Yeah. Um, and you've started to see that. So in my definition, a correction is anywhere from like 7 to 14%. Anything above that, you're in like crash territory. Um, and we've seen that. We've seen that in a ton of markets. Austin, you know, down 10%. Mm-hmm. You have the Seattles, you have the Portlands, you have all these different 
um, like Tampa's, for example, they're still hot. They're still high. Don't get me wrong. It's 10% off a, you know, 100% yeah, increase. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's still nominally high, but those markets have started to correct. Um, do I think there's going to be a 07, 08 like crash? Most likely not because that was very systemic. Now, um, people have low interest rate mortgages. People are buying houses with cash where, where they can in the markets they yeah. can afford to do that. Um, and then also people, they're sitting on uh, sitting on the sidelines with cash. So yeah. the people that are waiting, like in your shoes, for example, you probably have some money in the bank to where you can either put a significant down payment or potentially even pay you know cash for a home. Um, it's not going to be that huge systemic crash that we saw you know 15 years ago. So yeah. in my opinion, um, I think that the supply is still low, um, just due to municipalities, you know, building um, building permits being uh, handed out, things like that. And then also the demand is still high. But if you look at it, there's almost a shift in the narrative. I feel like we're going to become a nation of renters, similar to Germany, where I believe 52 to 53 percent of the population rents. Um, yeah. Just because if you look at the cost of home ownership. It's not just the price tag of the house, it's the property taxes, which will most likely never go yeah. down. It's the maintenance, it's the bills, it's you know all that stuff. That's why we're seeing 40 year mortgages. That's why we're seeing 96 month car loans. That's why we're seeing you know all these <laughs> just spreading that rubber band even further and further than it used to be, right? Like yeah. anything past the 48 month car loan was like unthinkable. And then you see right. 60, 72, you know, 84, you know, 96. Um, so it's just kicking the can down the road. So when will that snap? When will that rubber band snap? I have no idea, but just based on anecdotal, um, evidence, just talking to friends, family, business owners, you can kind of feel that tension of the rubber band mounting, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be really interesting. That's, yeah. The property tax thing sucks so much, especially in Texas. I mean, we don't, you know, we don't have, um, state income tax, but property taxes are high. And so it's like any house that we, we look at, it doesn't matter how much cash you bring to the table like you're still going to be stuck with a, a big bill every month for the taxes so that part Dude, my, my house is paid off brother i have a i have a nice paid off home in a nice suburb of cleveland and my property taxes will never go away <laughs> ever <laughs> so you never really own your home if you stop paying your property yeah. taxes see who owns your house right yeah that sucks man <laughs> all right how are property taxes in ohio uh, well, I'm in Cuyahoga County, which is Cleveland. So, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, they're high. But if you get into um, more, I don't want to say rural, that's the wrong way, like townships and stuff like that, yeah. um, you know, you can get in significantly reduced taxes. But yeah, Cuyahoga County, you know, you have major sports teams, you have infrastructure, you have roads, all that stuff, teachers, school districts, um, you know, you're paying a higher tax rate for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's gonna be interesting next year, man. And even like in our business, like, um, I, we're holding more cash than I've ever held before. Cause I'm yep. just like, you know, I've, I've got salaries, I've got all this stuff and I'm just like sitting there going like, we either are going to have to protect we're like, we're either going to have to just like keep a bunch of cash if like things take some kind of turn or there's gonna be a lot of opportunities to like buy up some businesses that are struggling. So I, I'm think, kinda... I think that's the move. I think you hit the nail on the head. So it's not necessarily going to be like uh, single residential opportunities, but I think, you know, businesses, um, acquisitions, in my, in my opinion, you probably believe this as well. You know, we're, you know, we're finance, personal finance adjacent, you know, that kind of yeah. content. But I think that the best ROI anyone can make, and I know this sounds super corny, Tony Robbins, you know, motivationally, <laughs> but it's investing in yourself, whether that's in, in your business, you know, I'm sure you can make a much higher return on, you know, ads for your products, your business so. than you can in buying a, you know, ETF, for example. Yep. That's, yeah, dude, right. that's what I've been struggling with the last last couple of years because I used to invest really, really heavily. And now that the businesses have grown, I'm like, man, it like it kind of only makes sense for me to like just keep pouring money back into the business and just take that money because like 
you know, I mean, I don't know when I'll sell everything, but someday I'll sell for some multiple. And, um, so, I mean, I still invest of course, but like, it's just one of those things where I'm like, I'm way more bullish on just in business right now for whatever reason. hundred percent. And I feel like once you, once that switch flips in your head, when you start understanding like EBITDA, like earnings before interest mm -hmm. taxes, depreciation, amortization, and you realize, Oh, if my, if my business throws off this much EBITDA and I can sell it at this multiple, that yeah. makes a lot more sense than buying, you know, VTI for example. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, I think investing in yourself, whether it's, you know, career, uh, whether it's education, whether it's some sort of skill set, that's always going to be your highest ROI. And then you can use that ROI to invest in other things, whether those are, you know, single family homes, stocks, you know, whatever, you know, that's, that's the key. If you have a high cash flowing business, take that cash flow, you know, buy assets and enjoy yeah. it, you know, 20, 30 years from now. Well said. My kid, I my, my three year old is about to like bust in the house. My grand, uh, my mother in law took him to uh, Chick fil A, <laughs> so, oh, we can nice. record. so nice. he's about to run in the house. So uh, we're gonna run out of time. So tell everybody first. Tell everybody about uh, the school. I want I want people to know about that, and then tell people where they can find you. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you having me, man. Um, yeah. yeah, it's always a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, so I started a community called Whiteboard Finance University. In a super quick nutshell, uh, we basically teach you know money management, uh, increasing your income, and then taking that difference and investing into stocks and real estate. We have uh, three full-time professors. Uh, think of professors as personal trainers. We have a, a subject matter expert in budgeting, uh, real estate, and then also stocks. Uh, and then I go live every week. Uh, we have full three full courses and just a ton of value. We're at about 125 members now. Um, and the quality of the members is, I'm blown away and I'm actually very proud of it. It's not just some random like, oh, how do I get rich buying this, you know, <laughs> ship coin, right? It's it's uh, people that are anywhere from, you know, lower middle class all the way up to like dual surgeon households and entrepreneurs. It's a really robust community. I'm really proud of it. Uh, so that's Whiteboard Finance University. You can find it at wbfuniversity.com. Uh, and then always you can find me on all my socials, Whiteboard Finance. Awesome, man. Well, we'll have some links in the, in the description. Um, but yeah, dude, thanks for coming on. This is fun. I want to have you back on at some point. Cause I want to talk more about like your actual business, like YouTube and all that stuff. But, um, yeah, we kind of went deep on the, like the gloom and doom of 2024. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Again, man, I'm, 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 uh, I'm fully transparent. Like I'm, I love having these conversations, especially with, you know, successful business owners such as yourself. I feel like, um, you've created, I, I mean, we've known each other basically since FinCon 2019, I believe since Washington, DC. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's unbelievable to see how we both grown. So it's always yeah. a pleasure speaking with you, man. Yeah, man. Cool. All right. Well, have you again? Have you on again later, man? All right. Thank you, Bobby.